Well, this morning we're going to uh, be continuing in uh, looking through the story of Elijah and Elisha. And we come to uh, a really great passage in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. It's only a few verses and uh, we're going to read that. And the words will come on the, uh, the screen behind me. And this morning's talk is called God Makes the Polluted Productive. And when we read the passage, you'll understand uh, something of what went on um, in this little incident with Elisha. So God Makes the Polluted Productive. And we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. This is what it says in 2 Kings chapter 2. The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the TV program uh, Location, Location, Location. Um, It's a sort of program uh, that uh, Annette and I quite uh, like watching. Um, And uh, it's obviously about people buying houses, and they talk about how the location is important. Well, the location in Jericho was something special. Um, it, was, uh, it, was a, uh, it seemed at the surface a nice place to live. When I uh, was uh, a little boy, my grandmother, uh, my dad's family, uh, lived in a place called Ababargoid in uh, the South Wales, in the Rumney Valley, and uh, lived in this uh, little terraced house, a painted terraced house, uh, 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 really, uh, it would have looked, you would have thought it looked quite nice on a sunny day, it would have looked quite pleasant. But right opposite it was this massive, great big slag heap. And uh, it was the remnants of the, uh, the, uh, the, the Welsh mining uh, industry, which is obviously now defunct. And uh, this slag heap was about 200 feet high, it was about half a mile long, uh, it was a massive great big thing, and it was, a hor- it was just such an eyesore. Beautiful little house, really nice little co- uh, 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 terraced house on the side of the Welsh Valley, and uh, yet yeah, opposite it was this great big massive slag heap which just looked awful. And uh, uh, the Forestry Commission got hold of it. They planted fir trees all over it in the attempt to make it look attractive. And it still looked like a horrible great big slag heap, but with a few trees on it. It was just awful. And every now and again, you'd see smoke coming from it, because obviously there was stuff still burning underneath. You know, location, the location of where you live is important. There are lots of people around at them, uh, over the last few years who bought lovely houses. They bought these houses and... Uh, uh, they, they went and looked at them and thought, oh, this is beautiful, lovely, big, uh, lovely garden. And at the bottom of the garden, there's this, there's, uh, there's this little stream. And, oh, that's oh, so nice. I really like to live there. They buy the house. And then over the last few years, we've seen terrible storms, huge amounts of water falling, uh, rivers rising. And suddenly, what seemed like such a beautiful house, like such a wonderful location, you find your front room is under about three feet of water. And lots of people have found that. Location 
is important. In this uh, story that we've read, we find Elisha was living in Jericho. uh, Jericho was known as the city of palms. It had a long history. And uh, in the Old Testament, you find that when the children of Israel had come out of bondage in Egypt and they'd uh, escaped Egypt and they eventually reached Canaan, the place where God was leading them to, uh, the first city that they came across was Jericho. It was a well-fortified city. It was an enemy stronghold. And capturing it was the first challenge that Joshua, who was leading the children of Israel, had. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a miraculous, a miraculous encounter. You can read about it in Joshua, the early chapters of Joshua. And uh, God miraculously gives the city into Joshua's and the children of Israel's hands. The walls fall down. Uh, you remember that. And uh, subsequently, they uh, destroyed the city. They uh, killed uh, the inhabitants of the city. And they completely leveled the city. There was no uh, remnants of the city left. And Joshua then placed a curse on, on, on that place that any man who tried to rebuild the city uh, at the laying of the foundations his firstborn son would die and at the setting up of the gates his youngest son would die. You read about that in Joshua chapter 6 verse 26. Terrible curse laid on the city of Jericho, what was left of Jericho. And although afterwards people lived in that area, and you read about that uh, in Samuel and Judges, the city wasn't rebuilt until Ahab's day. And uh, during King Ahab's reign, uh, uh, and uh, uh, we've, uh, over the last few weeks and months, we've been considering King Ahab's reign. We've been considering how uh, Ahab, how Ahab was a, a wicked, evil king, and it's not, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to us that Jericho, that had this terrible curse placed on it, would be rebuilt during Ahab's, the period of Ahab's control. And the guy who did it was a guy called Heel, and undoubtedly he did it with Ahab's permission. He rebuilt Jericho but at a terrible, terrible cost. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 16 that at the laying of the foundations, his firstborn son died. And at the setting up of the gates, his youngest son died. What a terrible price to pay. It must have been a great location for people to live, for someone to be prepared to pay such a price. Some years ago, I did a geography degree, and as, uh, I remember reading this paper, uh, and it was uh, all about the San Andreas Fault in, uh, uh, in California. It runs down the, uh, the west coast of the United States. And the San Andreas Fault is, uh, they, they are predicting that at some point, this fault, there's, there's going to be an earthquake which will be of devastating They've been predicting this for years. At some point, it will happen. And uh, they keep warning the people who live in the area, who actually live literally right on top of the fault, live on top of the San Andreas Fault, in uh, places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and that area. And they say to them, do you realize that one day, if there is an earthquake, if the San Andreas Fault, there's an earthquake, it will devastate this area. There will be thousands of people who will die. And people's response is, we would rather live here for just a short period than anywhere else. 
It's incredible the decisions that people make. Incredible. You see, the passage we read isn't a legend, it's prophetic, it's a prophetic story. And this incident really did happen, and it's written here for our instruction this morning. And I believe it's specifically relevant to us as a church, and God, I believe, wants to speak to us this morning. But before I uh, moved here uh, from Hedge End, someone uh, shared with me a number of passages and, uh, uh, that he, they felt were relevant, and one of them was this passage, and uh, said to me, I feel this is a really relevant passage uh, to the church in Winchester. Uh, And as I came here, I didn't know that John was preaching, planning to preach through the story of Elijah and Elisha. And a a few months ago, John asked me to preach on this passage. And I don't know if you remember when Julian Adams was here uh, a few weeks ago. uh, I think in the evening, Julian Adams prophesied and said that this church is like Jericho. It's well situated But the water's bad and the land is unproductive. You have been unproductive. Don't know if you remember that. So I feel that this passage this morning, I believe God wants to speak to us and I believe that we need to be people who pin back our ears this morning and listen to what the Spirit, God's Spirit, wants to say to us. The first thing I want us to see from this passage is this, is that appearances can be deceptive. Appearances can be deceptive. I remember doing uh, an A-level in pure maths, and I remember my teacher, Mr. Stonehouse. um, Interesting character. Um, He probably thought I was an interesting character as well. Um, But Mr. Stonehouse, there were two... I I used to sit by a guy called Hugh Phillips, and uh, his nickname was Dillis, and I used to sit by Dillis. And Dillis gave the impression of being uh, really not with it really gave the impression of, uh, of, uh, of not understanding anything. He gave the impression of being a bit of the class idiot, really. And Mr. Stonehouse thought that I was the really bright one, and Dillis was the one I was helping him. So um, that's what he thought was going on. But what happened was when it came to the exams, I really didn't uh, understand the subject very well. So when it came to the exams, what happened was, uh, Dillis, Hugh Phillips, he, he got about 75%. He came top of the class. And I got 24%. And I just remember being called into, uh, uh, in front of Mr. Stonehouse and he said, he said, boy, he said, chick, he said, this is the first time this has happened to me. He said, first time you have really pulled the wool over my eyes. He said, I've had it with you now, that's it. And so uh, the rest of my time... Uh, with him was very interesting. You know, appearances can be deceptive. You know, we can, uh, you know, personally in our own lives, they can be deceptive. We can pull the wool over people's eyes. But under the surface, things can be very different. You know, I've been to modern day Jericho. I uh, went there a few years ago. And it's located to the north of the Dead Sea. It's about five miles west of the River Jordan. The climate's hot and the landscape is barren. But Jericho itself is a veritable oasis. It's a very pleasant looking city with many palm trees. It's an oasis in the desert. And that would have been the case in Elisha's day. It was a very pleasant place to live. People liked living there. You know, Winchester 
is a very pleasant place to live. We live in a lovely part of the world. It's one of the most expensive places to buy a house in the country. The city is full of history. It's attractive. You know, Winchester is a very pleasant place to live. It's one of the most expensive places to buy a house in the country. The city's full of history. As you walk around, it's full of really interesting buildings. It's surrounded by beautiful countryside, isn't it? And the family church here, it's a great church. It's got a long evangelical history. It's a great church to belong to. We're blessed with buildings. This building, the MBC, is the most fantastic facility in the centre of Winchester, which God has miraculously given us. There are churches right across uh, this, uh, this country who would love to have a building like this. They would love to have a building like this. Let alone, we've not just got one, we've got two. That is amazing. This is such a blessed place to be. And yet, Jericho that we read about is a picture of this world. It's a picture of our country. And at a more personal level, our city. All looks pleasant on the surface, but appearances can be deceptive. You see, behind the facade, the water supply is polluted. The most serious pollution on the earth at the moment, you know, it isn't volcanic ash from an Icelandic volcano that I can't even name. It isn't carbon dioxide emissions which are slowly destroying the ozone layer and bringing about uh, global warming. It isn't the vast quantities of rubbish that we throw away. However bad these things are, the most serious pollution is what the Bible calls sin. I remember having a Peugeot 205, 1.9 GTI, red, fantastic car. It used to go like stink. I loved it. Really loved that car. But I remember one day driving to work and this red light, this little light came on on the dashboard. And uh, I looked at it. I thought, oh, it's the, it's the brake light. So I took it into the garage, said to the garage, look, there's something wrong with the brake light. Can you, can you sort it? They took the wheels off, had a look at the brakes, look at the electrics. Said, can't find anything wrong, sir. Drove it away. As I was driving away, this red light comes on again. I'm thinking, oh, no, this is really annoying. I've just, I've just paid to have this done. So I take it back. Look, it's come on again, and uh, it's still not right. They took the wheels off to check it again. And uh, drove away, same thing, went back, same thing again. And I'm getting quite frustrated by now. And, um, and as I was driving away the final time, the red light came on again. And I thought, oh, the brake light. And I suddenly thought, I wonder, I wonder if it is the brake light. And so I got the manual out. And I looked at the manual. It was, wasn't the brake light at all. It was the water. So I've been telling them it was the brakes, and it wasn't the brakes, it was the water. All the time, I had the instructions, I had the maker's manual there in the dashboard, and I thought I knew better. You know, the issue of sin, it's it's about our rebellion. God has given us a way to live, a blueprint for life. And we, uh, sin is choosing to live without looking at the manual. It's like me with the, uh, 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 seeing the brake light on the car. We choose to think we know better. We know what the problem is. We know how to sort it out. 
And all the time we ignore the maker's instructions. God has given us instructions on how to live. God uh, wants us to live his way. And we choose to live in an opposite way. And that's what the Bible calls sin and that's rebellion. Our rebellion from God has resulted in a curse on us and on our environment and the world we live in. And the world we live in is slowly decaying. That's what the second law of thermodynamics tells us. The world is tending to decay. Things aren't getting better and better. They're getting worse and worse. And you can see that physically. You can see that in the environment. But you can see that in our society and in our culture as well. So what was the problem in Jericho? Well, the New Jerusalem Bible puts it like this. The water is foul and the country suffers from miscarriages. And the Hebrew uh, uh, verb that's used could be translated as miscarriages. There was something lethal in the water supply that was causing fatalities in humans and in livestock. Maybe this showed itself in a higher than normal level of miscarriages. Perhaps it resulted in more premature births, stillbirths, problematic births, deformities, stunted growth. The amazing thing is, though, that people continued to live there. They, uh, they weren't influenced by that. They wanted to live in Jericho, and they put up with it. And God, I believe, wants to challenge us here today, and I believe God wants to say that the water is bad and the land is unproductive. You might be thinking, how can you say that? You might be shocked that I might say that to you. How can this be true? This church is one of the largest in the area. Well, sadly, that isn't a measure of good health. People loved living in Jericho despite the underlying problems. Over time, it's so easy to get used to the way things are that you'll put up with anything. Let me suggest some evidence of the problem. Winchester is full of people who, for the large part, are happy with their lot and indifferent to the seriousness of the underlying problems in society. Teenage pregnancy, abortion, spiraling debt, huge job insecurities, they're all somebody else's problem. Individuals are happy to put up with sin pollution in their lives, and carry on living without reference to the maker's instructions. People are happy to carry on doing that. I want to say as well, there has been very little healthy new birth in the church over many years. When was the last time that we saw a spate of conversions here? Of those who've been saved, how many struggle, how many have been badly birthed? They're weak and they're struggling to grow in God. You know, the church, I know John has shared his heart with me on many occasions. The church hasn't really grown for many years. Maybe it's because for a church of our size, there aren't many uh, very few, there are very few productive new initiatives springing up. We're not really having the impact that we should have. Maybe new ideas which are conceived aren't birthed well, and as a result, their development is stunted, and then they wither away and die. Too many people 
in the church are living comfortably, but essentially they're living unproductive Christian lives. Ooh, wow, that's a bit pointed. What about you? What about you this morning? You see, the worst thing we can do is to carry on and ignore what's going on and ignore the underlying problem. See, the answer is, like these men in Jericho, is to come to God and to present the problem to him. You know, appearances can be deceptive, but secondly, we see that serious problems need radical solutions. Some uh, months ago, Guy Miller brought a, a prophetic word to the church about a Rubik's Cube. And he said the church is like a, it's like you see, I, I see a Rubik's Cube. And the front face, uh, let's say the white face of the Rubik's Cube is perfect. And it looks great. But all the other faces are all messed up. And uh, he said, and in order to get the other faces right, unfortunately, you've got to break up the front face. It's a radical solution. It looks crazy, doesn't it? We actually look like we're worse off when you're doing the Rubik's Cube than you were at the, when you started because you, at least you had one face. Now you've got none because you've got to break that one face up to have any hope of dealing with the other faces. Serious problems need radical solutions. We need God to intervene and deal with root issues. This is the message that runs right through the Bible. The world may be a pleasant place to live, but the underlying problem of sin, our rebellion against God, is a killer. Everyone is infected. Everyone's infected. No one can stand before a holy God and declare, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean without sin. No one can stand innocent before God. The question throughout the Bible is, how can man be reconciled, be brought back into relationship with God? A radical solution was needed. And in response to the problem, we see Elisha does two things. First of all, he asks for a new bowl. Why a new bowl? Well, probably because it needed to be undefiled, something that was untainted by the past. If I was uh, in the kitchen, I'd probably, if I made a, a salad, a tuna salad or something like that, I, it's quite, it would be quite easy for me to forget to clean the bowl and, uh, and then to use it to make something else. But you would know as soon as if I made a cake, or tried to make a cake, let's put it in those terms, if I tried to make a cake afterwards and I'd made a cake and I hadn't it, you would know straight away they'd say there's something fishy in this. This is, oh, this is, because the bowl is, is, is dirty. The bowl hasn't been cleaned. The bowl is tainted with the past. And that's uh, uh, what needed to happen. Elisha wanted a bowl that was clean. A radical breaking with the past. And that's relevant on several levels. First uh, of all, it reminds us that in order to resolve the problem of sin, God needed someone to deal with a problem who was untainted by sin. No human being who has ever lived uh, 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 is, is not untainted by sin. Every person who's ever lived is, is scarred. Is, there's a, there's a, a sin running right through them. And so God needed a clean bowl. And so he sent his son. Jesus, who had coexisted with God throughout eternity, 
untainted by sin, left the glory of heaven and came and was born a man and lived a perfect life. The Bible tells us that he never sinned, never did anything wrong. He was God's perfect vessel to deal with the problem of sin, to deal with the pollution of sin. But there's also another level as well. When Julian Adams was with us, he referred to the new bowl being symbolic of a new wineskin for the church. And I believe that what God is saying to us is that there are going to be some changes. And it's going to, the church will have a different feel to it in the months and the years ahead. You know, the church has a reputation for doing things excellently. Those of you who are here at Bear Grills on Friday, it was fantastic. The guys who put it on did a great job. It was a really excellent evening. Well done to all of you. But it, and and it, was, it was run really well. It looked great. It was fantastic. But do you know what? When we see people being saved, when God deals with the waters, the, the, uh, we see a breakthrough in salvation of new birth of people being saved. It is going to get messy. You're going to have people sitting next to you who may have all sorts of problems. And it may not be as tidy and as neat as it's been in the past. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? You know, the new bowl also reminds us on a personal level, if we're going to be effective for God, we need to be clean vessels for noble purposes. There's this verse, it's going to come, come up behind me. This is what it says in Timothy. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made wholly useful to the master and, ready and prepared to do any good work. We need to be those who purify ourselves by coming to God and confessing our wrongdoings. If there are things in your life you know that shouldn't be there, get right with God. If you confess your sin, the Bible says, He is faithful and just to forgive you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The second thing Elisha does is he asks for this bowl to be filled with salt and then he throws the salt into the spring. Why salt? Well, I, like several commentators, believe that this salt is symbolic of God's word, the gospel, the good news that uh, we read right throughout the Bible. You see, uh, I believe that uh, this salt that Elisha speaks about is, is about this, this gospel that's relevant to us, and we need to be people of the gospel. You see... Salt, when you add, uh, add it to food, it adds flavour. It's distinctive. It also, at the time that Elisha was uh, around, it had great preservative qualities, curative. It, they used to hang meat to stop it decaying. It used to stop stuff uh, being infected and prevents infection. So people used to rub salt in wounds. You see... When we read this, the relevance of this to us is that when Jesus came as the new bowl, he brought the salt of the gospel. And when we read about Jesus and you read about Jesus' life, he dealt with the problem of sin. We heard about it this morning. When he hung on the cross, he died for us. He took our punishment. Once and for all, our sin was dealt with. 
that we could have a relationship with God. Sin is dealt with through Christ. He, is the, he brought the salt of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is that we can be free and we can live in relationship to God. But the Bible also says that we are the salt of the earth. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. You see, salt also speaks of the message and the impact of the message that we bring and the lives that we live. And as Christians, we're to have the same impact as salt does and as salt would have done in Elisha's day as we mix in the culture in which we live. We are to be distinctive. We have a stand-out message that's very different from what you hear from politicians and from other religions. We're to be those who live distinctive lives, lives marked by grace. People should see the evidence of the grace of God in our lives. People should see it. They should see something different in you. Whether that's at home, at work, when driving your car, when you're shopping, when you're dealing with difficult situations, people should see the evidence. I want to commend Gary and Debbie to you. When I read, I think it's probably Debbie's doing the emails, Gary. Is it both of you? Both of you. When they, when they write their emails, if you've seen their emails, I want to tell you, I feel humbled when I read them. The faith and the confidence they have in God in the most bleakest situation, they are standing out. They are being distinctive. God wants us to be like that as individuals and as a church. Our conversations, we're told in Colossians 4 verse 6, should be seasoned with salt. What about you? When you're at home, when you're with your Christian friends, what is your conversation like? Is God ever mentioned in your conversations? Sometimes I go some places, uh, and I'm not thinking of anywhere here, okay? So no one needs to think, oh, was he talking about me? I go sometimes, some places over the years I've been places, and God's never mentioned. People don't talk about God. Christians never mention. There's nothing distinctive about their conversation at all. You could be absolutely anywhere. All they talk about is football, cricket, shopping, clothes. How sad. We have a distinctive message And there's a real danger, Jesus tells us, that salt can lose its saltiness. We don't want to lose our saltiness. We don't want to be a useless grip, useful for nothing. We want to be salt. We want to be a preservative. Wherever we go, we want to bring uh, the presence of God, the gospel. We want to speak up for those who have no voice. We want to care for the poor and the vulnerable. We want to pray for the sick. We want to be those who preach the gospel. Serious problems need radical solutions. And we need to be a radical people. And God wants, I believe today, to get the salt of the gospel into us. He wants it to get right down into our very beings that we become more distinctive. That we become a people who have an impact in the places where we are. Serious problems need radical solutions. Finally, God's word brings fruitfulness. You see, it wasn't the salt itself that brought change. It was God's word that made all the difference. 
This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. You see, the salt was a sign, but the essential element was God's word. We need God's word in our hearts. We need God's word in our hearts. You know, everyone today is looking for an answer. We hear at the moment in the political arena, everybody is saying we have the answer. None of them have the answer to the problems this society faces, the problems that we're facing in Britain today. No one has, none, not one of them have the answers to our social problems, to our economic problems. They have, maybe have some good ideas. The only answer is found in God. This country needs to turn back to God. People need God. And they have no idea. And so we need to be those who stand up with the gospel, with this word, God's word in our hearts, knowing that that's the only thing that will bring and can bring fruitfulness. Hallelujah. We have the answer to the world's problems. You have the answer to your workplace, your street and your family. Elisha's presence made all the difference and so can your presence. Elisha went out to the spring, the source of the problem, and threw the salt into it. You have to throw the salt into the spring. It has to get into where the problem is. You need to be in the workplace. You need to be mixing with your neighbors. You need to be spending time with people out there in the world. God wants us to get into key areas of our culture and to be salt-like. Whether that's in education... The media, politics, health, business, industry. How on earth do we do this? By influencing in all of those areas. Whether it's as a classroom assistant, whether it's as a teacher, a head teacher, a governor. All of them are working amongst to influence the education of our children. If you're working in those areas, God bless you. Be salt in that place. Be the best you can be for God. Be distinctive. Stand up for what's right. We want to be those in uh, caring for the elderly. Bring in a whole new standard of care and value to those who are older. And so for those working in hospitals, those who are GPs, those who are working in pregnancy advice centers, wherever it is, wherever you're working in the health arena, be distinctive, be salt, be the best that you can be for God. Let the salt of the gospel get out into your workplace. May people see the gospel of grace working through you. So that you are different. You don't respond in the same way as everyone else. Because you're a child of grace. God has done something radical in your life. God wants to use you wherever you are to make a difference for him. How do you influence? Well, you can't influence unless you're involved. But where you're involved, you can influence. You know, as a result of this, as I draw to a close, as we we look at this city, this Jericho, this city that was cursed, lived under a curse, the people there lived under a curse, receives a blessing of grace. 
Curseville becomes Gracetown. This is the transforming power of the gospel. This is our message. This is the gospel. Hallelujah. It may not happen overnight, but if we give ourselves fully to living for Christ, we can see it can happen in our lives, in the lives, uh, in the life of the church, and in this city. God wants to make us fruitful. Too many people God believe God can do it elsewhere, but not in their lives. If so, this morning, then you need to come from wherever you are, and you need to come to Jericho. You need to come and stand in Jericho, and you need to see what God did in Jericho. You may, your life may be a mess. You may have failed. Your marriage may have been a disaster. You may have committed adultery. You may be living with the scars of it. You're still together, but it seems, seems that, that uh, you, you, you still feel like God can never really use me. Then you need to come to Jericho. You need to see the gospel of grace at work. You may have failed in your business life. You may have made all sorts of mistakes. You may have got things wrong. You may have done things that you're deeply ashamed of. And you may feel, God, you can't ever use me again. Well, you need to come to Jericho. You need to come to Jericho. Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this. Does this not address the man who still despairs as he looks back to his sin-twisted, knowingly rebellious decision he made? And though he has long since repented in tears and sincerity, a cloud seems to hover over his life. He fears he can never enjoy the sunlight of God's smile again. Or perhaps it was that immoral act years ago that has infested your marriage and infested your conscience. And though finally confessed, you're convinced that though God may tolerate you, he can never welcome you or delight in you. Such people need to be dragged, kicking and screaming to Jericho. And when we get them there, we need to shout at them, this is your God. Hallelujah. God is a God of grace, forgiveness. If you've made mistakes, there's hope for you. God wants to use you. Hallelujah. So in conclusion, don't be deceived by appearances. Maybe this morning you've, you know you've covered up. You know you may look, everything may look okay to everyone else around. But you know deep down the water's polluted. At a heart level it's polluted. Don't be deceived. Come to God this morning because radical problems need solutions. And God, for serious problems, God has a radical solution. And his solution is the gospel. It's the gospel of grace. You need to come to God this morning and receive grace from God. Hallelujah. As a church, we need to be a church of grace. You see, God wants us individually and corporately to be fruitful. Hallelujah. God wants us to be fruitful.